A reading from the book of Jeremiah. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. The word of the Lord. Uh, if you would, I'm going to say one more quick word of prayer, so please bow with me. Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. And in the oldest prayer of the church, I pray, come Holy Spirit, come in Jesus' name, amen. So today's going to be a little different. This fall, we've been working our way through the life of David, King David, through the book of 1 Samuel. But we're hitting the pause button on that sermon series so that I can just share a reflection of what I see God doing around us and through us into the future. And uh, it's fitting because uh, I received... Pictures right from the men's hike, right when they started to come home. I started receiving pictures and text messages that were astonishing. You know, this fall we've had our first women's retreat. We had 50 women go away and grow deeper with God and one another. And, and now we've just had our first men's retreat last weekend where 30 men uh, went up into the mountains together to grow closer to God and one another. And um, I was bombarded with emails and texts from men last Sunday and all week. In fact, even late last night, I'm, I'm trying to sleep. This is the danger of some of you knowing my cell phone. I'm trying to sleep, and I get a couple messages from someone who's written a song. 
that God's laid on his heart about what God did in the mountains through his life. And this particular guy, I bet a year ago, had I said, you're going to write a song about God meeting you in the mountains, he would have said, you're crazy, because I don't know how to play guitar. <laughs> but this person has written a song about his experience. I've had other men, even between the services this morning, say, there's a bond. I want to kind of get to know the other men in the church, but God broke through. There's a bond now between some of us men that I, I just can't describe. Another person said to me, uh, or said to my wife about her husband, he, he's cried now for two or three days. He, he was convinced and committed that he wasn't going to open up, and he came back from the hike wide open with what God was doing. So while the men were at this hike, our staff, we were in Chicago at a big national or North American conference called Redeemer City to City. And we were there with thousands of leaders, multi-ethnic leaders from cities across North America, hearing how God is cultivating gospel movements in the cities. There were Asian-American worship bands. There were African-American worship bands. We were praying with brothers and sisters we'd never met. But God was showing up and showing off in ways that I needed to see. And frankly, we need to pay attention to. You see, God is moving in our midst. And God wants to move in our midst into the future. Have you ever asked this question? What is the dream God has for your life. Not, not, not what is your dream for your life. What is the dream God has for your life, Dave? What is the dream God has for your life, Senora Paps? What is the dream, Matt, that God has for our lives? And that's why we're focusing on the Jeremiah 29 passage today. You see, I believe our passage teaches this truth. God has designed us to flourish by living out a God-sized vision. Do you believe God has designed you to flourish and live out a God-sized vision today? We're going to unpack this truth through three kind of sub-points. Number one, I'm going to encourage you to look up and trust your Father. Number two, I'm going to invite you to look around right now. Look around and see your family, and love them. And number three, I'm going to invite you to look out and build your city. So let's dive in. Point number one, look up and trust your father. We read earlier, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in the future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. A beautiful, beautiful passage. Has anyone ever found comfort in this particular passage? Raise your hand. So this is one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture, yet it's also one of the most misunderstood. It's beautiful. Why? Because it's plump with promise. It's full of promise. We read, I know the plans. This is God. I know the plans I have for you, Drew. Plans to prosper you, Brian. Plans to give you a hope and a future. 
That's good news, right? It's saying there's a God who's caring for us, who has his eyes on us. And he wants us to flourish. And then it goes on and it expresses deep fullness of love. I know. I listen. And I'll be found. And it's, it's beautiful with its promise backed by power. And it's rich in its love and its intimacy. In fact, this intimacy, just as a side note, is what separates the scandalous intimacy that we hear promised in the Old Testament and we see through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This scandalous intimacy is what separates our faith from any other faith tradition. The God, the other God, the sovereign God comes near. Why? For you. So that you would know his love. He wants you to flourish. And so the passage basically instructs us. What's it require? It requires we seek and find him when we seek him with all of our heart. It almost reminds me of like a romance novel, right? Like Last of the Mohicans, if some of you have seen that movie. Like, I will find you. I will come to you. It's like sappy. You're like, whoa. And yes, it's that powerful and it's that beautiful. So why is it misunderstood? Well, this passage, this is written for a community, not an individual. And we're called to repentance and action through this passage. You know, true biblical study, there's no text without context. You see, what's happening here in the context of Jeremiah 29 is the people of God are facing darkness. We've talked about darkness with the life of King David, how God will use darkness to discipline us and to develop us. And that's the point here. The people of Israel, this is several hundred years after King David's life. And, and, and God has built a kingdom and a nation under David's leadership. And he's like, trust me, walk with me. And they say, no, we're going to go our own way. And in come the Babylonians, and they take the people of God hostage into exile. But it says, God is still in control. I've sent you into exile. But listen to this promise. Listen to my love. The point being, we all know darkness, don't we? And God is saying, take note of your darkness, but through the darkness, take note of me. Turn and trust me. The word repentance literally means to do a 180. It's time you find me again. So uh, what does this look like? Well, one first is a humorous kind of story from the men's hike that I've heard. And the second is kind of the depth and richness from the men's hike. So... A couple weeks ago, I preached on hiking myself, and I shared about taking some uh, urban kids up to the mountains and how I had warned them about bears. Well, I've heard uh, that some of you men were warned about bears, right? That there's a heightened activity uh, of bears. Um, so I've heard that at night, um, you guys were kind of concerned when it would get dark, and uh, some of you even said, you know, Paul talked about toothpaste, bears wanting toothpaste. Everyone make sure you not only have food in the camp, but even your toothpaste. Get it out of the camp. Well, did you know that your leaders set you up by talking to that park ranger who came to you and told you that there's heightened bear activity? Gotcha! Did you know that? Okay. Keep it tame. You can talk and confront after the sermon. So the men were concerned about the bear activity in the darkness around them. That is hilarious. 
I didn't tell them to do that. I don't know whose idea it was. But they ran into a park ranger and said, hey, will you tell them there's heightened bear activity? And he did it. But beyond the bear activity, oh, someone was eaten by a bear. That was the story. That was the narrative. Well, anyways, God uses fun, but he also, he also uses friendship. So what happened on this hike? It's not like these guys like to go up into the mountains and kind of strip off the metaphorical, you know, mask they put on. Like, God led them into the mountains, and God peeled back layer after layer after layer, I'm told. You see, we all have kind of gone astray and kind of gone off kilter, if you will, with our lives. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then we've all been wounded by others that have done the same to us. We all live with different kind of trauma, if you will. And we carry these wounds in this sin. And we then kind of bandage it and put on mask, right? I'm okay. How are you doing? I'm okay. But God wants to strip it back. He wants to strip it back. And he did that, I'm told, on the hike again and again and again. Why? So that they could see their need for God in one another. Point number one is this. Friends, we're first called to look up and to find our Father and to trust Him. Point number two is this. Look around and find your family. Look around and love your family. Our passage calls us to. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places that you're in. See, here's the deal. The greatest danger you will ever face in life is the lie that you're all alone. The greatest danger you will ever face is this toxic lie that you're all alone. And for some of you, you believe it. You believe ultimately I am alone in your, my singleness, in my divorce, whatever it is, even in my marriage, in my job, I'm utterly alone. Uh, this last week, I had the joy of going to the Life Resources Banquet here in Charleston. Life Resources is a leading professional faith-based counseling hub. And they do great work, and we're partnered with them in helping kind of try to salvage marriages and, and deal with stuff. And they had a guest speaker named Renee Hodges. Renee's written a, a book called Saving Bobby. And, and the book goes like this. Uh, Renee uh, has a nephew, when he was a junior in college, he got a, a real serious injury. I think it was a sports back injury. And he went to the doctor, and he was prescribed oxycodone. And before you know it, he's hooked. And then he's falling into the downward spiral of addiction. And they send him to rehab. And he goes to one rehab, then relapses when he gets out. He goes to another rehab. Uh, relapses. Another, another, almost all of his 20s was spent in and out of rehabs and halfway houses. Until Renee, his aunt, gets a call from her brother, his dad, saying, 
help. I'm at my wit's end. He, he's at his end. He doesn't even want to live. And she lived near Duke, and naively she said, why don't you send him to us for two weeks? We'll have him medically checked at Duke, and hopefully that'll heal everything. On the way, he didn't show up. Why? Because he almost died of an overdose as he stopped at, like, a rest stop. He finally gets up near Duke to Renee's house, and she just says, you know, the thing I learned is the power of community. So she started emailing. Renee's probably in her 60s. Uh, she started emailing all of her friends, neighbors, church people, tennis friends. Hey, my nephew Bobby's coming, and I need help, and he needs help. He needs friendship. He needs community. And so all these people started, like, reaching out to Bobby, awkward people, people he would never be friends with. And they'd take him to coffee. They'd take him to dinner. They'd take him to church. They'd invite him over. And it changed everything. You see, for those who have come through addiction, rehab is just the start to something new. You're launching, you need something new. You need life-changing community. And Bobby found it. 16 months later, he moved out. She thought, Bobby's going to be with me two weeks. 16 months later, Bobby moves out sober. He goes on to finish his undergraduate degree and then gets a master's in social work. And right now is helping people come out of the life of addiction. You see, friends, this great danger that we face of being alone is a lie. We are hardwired to be members of a multi-generational and multi-ethnic family. The passage, uh, it, it speaks to the promise made to Abraham back in Genesis 12, which reads, I will make you into a great nation, God says to Abraham, and I will bless you, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's the beginning of the Bible. At the end of the Bible, God's speaking to his church, and he says, after this, um, excuse me, John the writer speaking to the encounter with the heavenly, after this I looked up and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, God loves his people, and he loves his church, and you're called to be a, a foundational, a pivotal part of a story in a family much bigger than you could ever imagine. You're called to be part of a multi-generational, multi-ethnic family representing all different nations, nations and tongues and backgrounds and ages. Uh, one of the coolest things that I heard in our church over the last year was the story, or really the testimony, of Steve and Kim Kramer. Uh, he stood up here, and Steve and Kim have the gift of generosity. Uh, what do I mean by that? They, they not only tithe faithfully in accordance with God's word, they try to go above and beyond their tithe, and they're, like, excited. They're telling me, like, I really want to this and that. And so when he stood up here a year ago and shared why, it was amazing. He said when he was a young professional, they were newlyweds. He stood up, and he said, uh, or excuse me, they, they joined a church. They are trying to figure it out, and they kind of fell on their faith with their finances and his work. 
He failed multiple times in business. Finally, some older mentors from the church rallied around them, helped straighten out their finances and the trajectory of his and her life. And he stood up here last year and he said, what brings me great joy is knowing I'm tithing not for me, but for you. For you, Brandon. For you, Carly. For all of our kids, all of our grandkids, this community. And he's getting, he got something. I'd never heard someone give a testimony like that. But he's preaching and sharing about this. God is building a multi-generational, multi-ethnic family called the church. And we are all called, called to be a part of it. You're called to be a part of a bigger family, a bigger story. It's as if God is saying in this passage, you don't find you until you find me. And you don't find you until we find, excuse me, until you find we. Look around, friends, find your family. You belong and love your family. Point number three, look out and build your city. The passage goes on. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. You catch that? When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to you to bring you back to this place. God in this passage is saying, build, plant, settle, marry, multiply. Seek the peace and prosperity. The word in Hebrew is shalom. Seek the shalom of your neighborhood. Seek the shalom of Daniel Island. Seek the shalom, the total flourishing of Charleston. Don't just be someone who's essentially a buyer. Be a builder. Don't just be a consumer. Be a contributor. Build a great city for me and with me. Just as a side note, history begins in a garden, Garden of Eden. It ends in a city. Read the end of Revelation. And beyond that, what we learn about Scripture is what we're seeing in history right now. Listen to these statistics. For the first time in history, 50% of the world's population lives in a city. By 2050, 75% of the world's population will live in a city. Looking at it through a graphic from Redeemer City to City, Five million new people each month move into a city. That's like one new Chicago every month. Why are you here in Charleston? People move to a city for a variety of reasons. If you're an innovator, there's kind of collision and innovation that typically happens in a city. That happens in a city. If you're a creative type, you typically find other creative types in a city. If you're an elderly person, you typically find heightened services that can care for you in a city. If you're a refugee, you find safety with your people in a city. You see? Young people like the energy of the city. We're all drawn to the city for different reasons. But God's word is saying, Mike Banks, I'm calling you, love your city. That's why at this conference last week, I heard this. The greatest need of our day is for the gospel to enliven first our hearts and then our cities. Some of you have heard the vision, one of my hopes for our church is this. I have a 14-year-old, 12-year-old, and 10-year-old. And my dream is actually to somehow one day lead our church so that I can hand their hands off in marriage. Wouldn't that be beautiful? 
But I honestly think that vision's too small. God is stretching my eyes and he's stretching back the veil and he's saying, look longer and look wider. God loves you. God loves the church, but God's calling us to also love our city. An illustration to consider this point. In 1989, I went to boarding school in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Anyone here from Chattanooga, Tennessee? Oh, gosh. I'm alone, but I'm not alone. Anyone here from Tennessee? Anyone here from Tennessee? One person. Let's give them a round of applause. See, I'm not alone. So I grew up in a, in a small Florida town in the educational system. Uh, it, it wasn't the best. My mom said, we want to encourage you in your academic kind of trajectory. So they sent me to boarding school. It's called the Macaulay School. I went there when I was in eighth grade, and I was there through the, my 12th grade year until I graduated. Uh, Chattanooga was one of the dirtiest, if not the dirtiest city in the United States in 1960. Did you know that? Uh, when I even went to school there in 1989, when you would wake up, there'd be so much smog in the city every morning that it, it was just like a veil of pollution. And hopefully it would lift by the end of the day. Back in the day when people would go to work in their suits and white shirts, the rumor has it that they would come home and their shirts would be gray by the pollution. And the people in churches and other organizations around Chattanooga said, we need to love our city. And they came up with a multi-decade plan to love their city, to revitalize their city. Has anyone been to Chattanooga recently? Raise your hand. Yes. Come on, guys. Okay, listen. It's incredible. It went from being this kind of dumpy industrial city, a smog haven, to a gorgeous city with great walkability. They converted a downtown bridge, Walnut Street Bridge, to a walking bridge. They built restaurants, coffee houses, and such on both sides. They built a beautiful aquarium. They leveraged God's natural resource, the Tennessee River, to build along the riverfront. If you're a rock climber, I think there's the best rock climbing gym right there downtown in Chattanooga. If you want to do a little family excursion, go to Chattanooga. But these people had the vision and commitment to love their city. And in view of our passage, God says, after 70 years of you investing together in this city, I'll bring you home. So let me ask this question. What if we prayed for a 70-year plan for Charleston? What's the new Charleston going to look like 5 to 10 years from now? 15 to 20 years, 25 to 30 years. What if we banded together? JM, what if you and I and our families, what if we banded together and said, we're going to seek the shalom of our city. We're going to commit here. We're not just going to live in Charleston for a year or two, eat at the great food restaurants, maybe go to a nice concert here or there. We're here. This is our people, and this is our city, and we're all in. Not just for Charleston, but for cities around North America and beyond. We're going to be a lighthouse in our nation. I'm convinced nothing would be impossible if we widened our hearts and our minds to, to dream. So look out and build your city. In summary, God has designed us, you and me, to flourish. And he invites us to live with God-sized vision. Closing question, will you live out this vision with us? 
Will you be a people of vision as the Daniel Island Fellowship? I'm all in. How about you? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. It's so encouraging and it's even convicting. Some of us need to be open to you this morning and and just say, God, I'm in darkness. And I turn to you today. Would you give me your promises and your love? Some of us feel so alone. We don't know that we have a family or some of us are frankly just kind of consumers. We're not committed. God, would you forgive us and may we look down our pews and around this room and recognize you have raised up a brilliant family for us, but it's not complete. May we love each other well. And God, may we dream. May you give us dreams. May we pray for the peace and prosperity of Charleston and other cities. And may we move from consumers to contributors, building a great city for you with our friends and with this family. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.